If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to grab it and turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, begin in verse 1. And as you're turning there, if you would please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Acts chapter 13, begin verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 12. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and exposition of His Word. Lord God Almighty, we again are thankful for this opportunity to open Thy Word, to read it, and to expound it. O God, we ask by Thy Holy Spirit to guide us and to apply the Word that we hear read and expounded tonight to our hearts, O Lord. Help us to live in obedience and by faith lay hold of the promises we find in it. Uh, By faith, turn away from sin and heed the warnings that are found within Thy Word, O God. Lord God, make us strong and wise. Let all that is true be clung to with true faith, and all that is false be forgotten. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Acts 13, beginning in verse 1. We'll be specifically working through verses 4 through 12 this evening, but I want to start in verse 1 for context. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manane, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bargesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Alemus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind and not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Dear congregation, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Again, we will primarily be drawing our expositions in our evening service this year from the Robert Murray McShane reading plan. So if you're following along in the McShane reading plan, then yesterday you read through Acts chapter 13, which contains our passage this evening. In this passage, we see the beginnings of St. Paul's missionary career, the first fruits of his first missionary journey. In it, we also see, arguably, the first totally or wholly Gentile convert, one who had no former religious background in Judaism whatsoever. 
the Roman proconsul or governor, Sergius Paulus. For this reason, and many others, it's an important passage. In it, we see how the gospel of Christ interacted and collided with a pluralistic and pagan society, its leaders, its customs, and its beliefs for the first time in a missionary context. The apostles had been bold, as we recall last week, in their proclamation of the gospel to their own fellow countrymen. They had remained steadfast in the face of opposition that they faced from the rulers of their own people, but how would all of this translate to a wholly pagan context? Would the gospel come in the same earth-shaking power and cultural reorientation that had come among the Jews? How would the apostles respond to the objections and resistance of those with no background in Judaism, of those who did not profess to worship Yahweh, the one true God? We have seen instances in the book of Acts, as we've been reading, of individual Gentiles being receptive to the gospel prior. Uh, Think of the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, Cornelius and his household in chapter 10. But how would it be received on a larger scale, in a holy Gentile context, by pagan rulers? These questions are answered in our passage this evening. We will walk through the text and then ask what ways we can and should imitate the apostles in their presentation and proclamation of the gospel to the nations. In verse 4, Saul and Barnabas are sent out by the Holy Spirit. The church in Antioch had commissioned them to the work of evangelism in foreign lands. After they'd spent time fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit had told them to separate Saul and Barnabas for the work which I have called them. And and this strikes us, or at least it should, with how we think of missions and evangelism in our own day. Often in our day and age, the work of missions and, and going on a missions trip is often viewed through too casual of a lens. It's more of a week-long vacation for Americans than a solemn work guided by the Holy Spirit of God. But we must remember that missionary work is the work of God through his people. As the Holy Spirit calls and equips his people and then sends them into all the earth to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It must not be viewed as anything other than this. It's not going out to build wells and build schools or to just get out of the country for a time. Yes, those things can be involved, but it's not primarily this. It must be viewed as Christ sending out his people by his spirit to preach his gospel. Christ is building his church by his spirit through his people in the work of missions. The church in Antioch was obedient to the Holy Spirit's choice here of Saul and Barnabas. And the apostles were submissive to the leading of the Holy Spirit as they begun going where he led them. The Holy Spirit sends Saul and Barnabas down to Seleucia and from there to the island of Cyprus. We are not told how they were instructed, how they knew to go to Seleucia and then down to Cyprus. We're not told how they were instructed to go on this course, but as one commentator pointed out, the Holy Spirit does not routinely contradict common sense. 
We are told in Acts 4.26 that Barnabas was a Levite from the country of Cyprus. And we know that after the martyrdom of Stephen, there had been some missionary activity amongst the Jews in Cyprus. We read about that in Acts chapter 11, specifically verse 19. So it would be common sense for the Spirit to send them to a place where Barnabas had connections and he knew the area and he knew some of the people. By this, we should be reminded that we too must be strategic in our evangelistic church planting, and missionary endeavors. We should not just set out willy-nilly with no plan. As our Lord reminds us, we, being sent out often into the midst of wolves, must be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves, Matthew 10, 16. It means we shouldn't just barge into places and situations with the gospel, doing kind of hit-and-run evangelism with no plan, no common sense involved whatsoever. Using the wisdom and common sense that God has given us, we must, to the best of our abilities, view the situations, the opportunities, and the resources that God has providentially put before us through the lens of Scripture and godly counsel. Then, committing it all to God in prayer, asking for the Holy Spirit's aid and blessing, we must act. As a negative example, I'm reminded of a young American uh, a few years back, some of you might know this story as well, who felt a strong urge and desire to bring the gospel to a a hostile and uncontacted tribe living on the North Sentinel Island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. In 2017, he set, set out to evangelize the tribe who would ultimately take his life. He was not sent out by a church or a missionary organization. He didn't learn their language prior. He did not work alongside any other Christians in the area to try to establish a base first and make contact. And although he knew that the tribe was hostile to all outsiders, not just Christians, all outsiders, he bribed local fishermen to drop him off a safe distance from the shore. And then upon reaching the beach, he was brutally killed by the tribesmen. Now, while his bravery and desire to see the Sentinelese brought to Christ can certainly be commended, we cannot help but think that had he used common sense and followed the Spirit's normal method, he would still be alive. Using wisdom, planning, and being led by the Holy Spirit are not contrary to each other. As Jesus says further on in the passage we quoted earlier in Matthew chapter 10, he says, be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. He also says when you're brought before the rulers in their courts, he goes, do not plan ahead what you're going to say in response, for it'll be the Holy Spirit speaking in you. The Spirit of your Father in you will give you the words to say at that time. So these things are not contrary one to another, being as wise as serpents and being quote-unquote, spirit-led. Led by the Holy Spirit to a place that was well known to Barnabas, he and Saul arrive in Salamis, which is on Cyprus's east coast near modern-day Famagusta. They give themselves to preaching the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, verse 5. As we read earlier in Acts, Saul was Christ's chosen vessel, elected to bear Christ's name before Gentiles and kings. But the inclusion of the Gentiles 
did not mean the exclusion of the children of Israel, did it? And we see this become the custom of Paul. He goes first to the Jews and and then to the Gentiles. He doesn't skip over the Jews to get to the Gentiles. The disciples were commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, making disciples of all the nations. Matthew 16, or Mark 16 and Matthew 28. This obviously includes both Jews and Gentiles. We are not told in the text what the outcome of their preaching among the Jews was. But there is reason to assume that their word was generally received, not only because there had been previous missionary work done uh, among the Jews in that area, but also we don't read of any resistance, any rejection like we do at the end of chapter 13 from the Jews to the preaching. We do read that Saul and Barnabas had John as their assistant. This is the disciple John Mark, the later companion of Barnabas on missionary journeys after he and Paul had a division of falling out over John Mark here. And the assumed amanuensis of the apostle Peter, who probably wrote the Gospel of Mark. God had chosen Barnabas and Saul by the Holy Spirit, and they chose John and brought him along with them. His role at this time was not one of preaching, but of assisting. He was their servant. The King James has minister. He was their assistant. He would go on, truly, to become a great preacher and church planter in his own right. Church tradition actually tells us that he went down into Egypt and planted churches and pastored churches down in Egypt, and that's where he was actually martyred. The Alexandrians came in and drug him out while he was preaching one day and and martyred him. We see again that the missionary mindset of the Apostle Paul and how how he thought about missions, how he thought about evangelism. Paul was multi-generational in his approach to establishing Christ's kingdom. He didn't see the work of Christ in establishing his church ending with himself or the other apostles. He knew that the next generation of church planters, ministers, evangelists, and missionaries must be raised up in his own lifetime. So they bring along John Mark with them as an assistant, to be interned in a way, if you will. So too, we must be mindful of how we go about the duty of evangelism today, how we go about church planting, how we go about our missionary work in our own lives as the present church of God on earth. We must always have an eye to the following generations that are going to come after us, that we are going to leave the church into their hands, There are many churches and ministries in our day which will no longer exist in 50 years. They are built around personalities, preferences, present paradigms, and pop culture, and so they perish with those things. That's not how we should build the church, around our own preferences, around personalities. We must build churches which will outlast our great-grandchildren, not just the next election cycle. The church must be built upon Christ and his word, not us and our preferences. While we proclaim the word of God to our present generation, we must also have our Johns with us as assistants. The church we build must be good not only for us, but for the generation that we leave it to. After they preached in Salamis, they went on a preaching tour, one commentator says, across the whole country. They go 90 miles west to Paphos. There they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, 
whose name was Bargesus. He was apparently a court official to the Roman governor. He was with the proconsul, we read. And he was nothing but a no-good, dirty, rotten troublemaker, as we shall see. First, he is identified as a sorcerer, a magos or a magi. He's an expert in astrology, an expert in the interpretation of dreams, one who consults demons and other occult arts in order to work signs and wonders. Second, we see that he is called a false prophet. This word has been much abused in our day and much misused in our day, but it still has its rightful place. We see this thrown out around a lot. I've uh, not anymore, but I used to be on a lot of you know reformed message boards and things like this, and and people would throw around these words, especially in their cage stage of evangelism of Calvinism, that they would say this about Arminians, right? They're false prophets because he believes in Arminianism, and he doesn't believe in Calvinism. But a false prophet is not just someone who believes or teaches something that is wrong or that isn't true. That's not biblically what a false prophet is, but one who intentionally perverts others' understanding of the truth, and moreover, one who lives a lifestyle that is out of accords and rebellious against the truth of God's word. Third, we see that this man was a Jew. As a Jew, he should have been a light to the nations, a light to the Gentile Cyprus, living to instruct the Gentiles in the true worship of Yahweh, eagerly awaiting the coming of Messiah, eagerly awaiting missionaries like Saul and Barnabas to come and and tell him that Christ has come, that Christ has lived and died and is risen. But instead, this Jew serves Satan as a court wizard in the governor's estate. He was given a fitting name, for a servant of hell. Bar-Jesus, or Bar-Yeshua, which is Aramaic for son of Joshua, which as we covered during Advent, son of salvation. Like his master, he masqueraded as an angel of light. This Jew is a son of salvation, but in reality, he, is, he was, as Paul says, a son of the devil, verse 10. Elimus the sorcerer, as Luke calls him in verse 8, sat in the court of the Roman proconsul, the governor over all of Cyprus, whose name was Sergius Paulus. Sergius is identified as an intelligent man, verse 7. He had heard of the missionaries, no doubt, and what they were doing as they went across Cyprus, as they made their way through Cyprus, preaching the gospel, not just in the synagogues, but also, no doubt, to the Gentiles. And so he sought to hear the word of God. From them, And he called for Saul and Barnabas to be brought to him. It is the duty of all magistrates to both hear and give heed to the word of God. So Sergius shows his good common sense and his intelligence in doing this. When the missionaries come, however, the son of salvation, Bar-Jesus, Elimus the sorcerer, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Verse 9. Through Elymas, Satan took up arms against the apostles. Behind the confusion of Sergius concerning the gospel lay this satanic worm tongue, Elymas, whispering in his ear. As Paul later wrote to the Ephesians, Ephesians 6.12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, 
against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And here we have an example of that very thing happening in Elymas. See how Satan loves pluralism, the lie of pluralism here. We don't know what what Sergius heard from Elymas or what Elymas was saying to, to Sergius at this point, but it could have been something like we would have in our day. Sergius should not concern himself. He shouldn't be worried about these Jews, Saul and Barnabas. They have their way to God. Elymas has his way to God, and Sergius may have his own. Each have their own merits, as long as none claims supremacy over the others. Elymas, through his dark arts and infernal reasoning, had a hearing with the governor, meaning his, his word had weight. He was with the proconsul. He was in his court. His words against the apostles had weight. But does Saul uh, cower now? Does he get afraid? Does he acknowledge the moral good of pluralism? Does he say, yes, Sergius, we Jews well understand the separation that is supposed to exist between church and state, and while acknowledging Elymas' right to his own beliefs, we urge you to please give ours a hearing also. No, that's not what he does at all. In verse 9 we read, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. This is the first time in the book of Acts that Saul is called Paul, and he is never referred to as Saul again. Saul is a Jewish name, a Hebrew name, and Paul is a Gentile, a a Greek, or, or more accurately, a Latin name. And this signals the apostles stepping into his role as the apostle of the Gentiles, Romans, apostle to the Gentiles, Romans 11, 13. There had been, there has been much speculation amongst commentators and theologians as to why this name, Paul, is chosen. It was common for Jews to have a Gentile second name. Some say that Pavlos, since it means small, that's what that word means, the apostle in choosing this name is highlighting his humility as the least of all the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15.9. Others that he took or was given the name of the first Gentile ruler turned Christian convert, Uh, Sergius Paulus as a kind of living trophy to Christ. That's my favorite. I like that one. Ultimately, we don't know where this name came from, why he was given this name, but it signals for us a shift in perspective that we should have as readers of the book of Acts. Saul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Philippians 3.5, who had formerly made havoc of the church, Acts 8.3, is now the apostle Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to the Gentiles, standing here before the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus. Paul loved his countrymen according to the flesh, the Jews, Romans 9.3. But he also loved the Gentile sheep of Christ to whom he was sent. Thus he could not sit idly by and just allow this satanic Jew to lead the governor astray. A kind of no-holds-barred smackdown follows. What Paul says to the sorcerer is certainly not politically correct. Many would say that it's not very winsome, especially being spoken in the presence of unbelievers. 
Many modern Christians would consider it mean-spirited, overly harsh, and probably an infraction of the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. But before we pass too strict a judgment on the apostle, let us remember who the real speaker is. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul spoke these words under the direction and inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, to this wicked sorcerer. Through Holy Spirit-wrought discernment, Paul called this man exactly what he was. This man was trying to persuade the proconsul of his truth against Paul's. He was full of all deceit and all fraud. Being named the son of salvation, bar Yeshua, but practicing dark arts, he was a son of the devil. As a Jew, he was to be a practitioner of righteousness, but instead he'd become an enemy of all righteousness. As a son of Abraham, he was to be a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, Romans 2.19. But instead, he did not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord. Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, calls, calls it like it is. Paul confronts Elymas Magus as Peter had confronted Simon Magus, 8.20. Paul boldly called out the son of hell, for exactly what he was. This was a great witness and a great testimony to the governor, Sergius. Elymas had worked to turn the gospel to mincemeat, but Paul, by the Holy Spirit, clarified what was really true according to God. Elymas tried to pervert the straight ways of the Lord, and God, through Paul, made them straight again, so that Sergius might know the truth as it is in Jesus. Instructing Gentile magistrates in discerning false teaching. That's what he's doing here. And he sees it as at least part of his duty. The sorcerer's judgment may seem overly severe to us moderns. He struck blind, but it was actually quite fitting. Rather than bringing God's light to the eyes of the Gentiles, like he should have, he had sought to actually make them blind. As a false prophet, he sought, he sought to make others blind to the truth, so God made him blind. The judgment was instant as well. Verse 11, immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. He had sought to lead others into dangerous paths, but now he could find no one to lead him into safety. We must also notice the connection between Paul and Elymas. Paul, in one sense, is casting judgment on his old self, Saul. Saul had also withstood the apostles, if you recall. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he, too, went to their ruler, the high priest, seeking to turn him away from the faith, Acts 9.1 and 13.8. When the Lord confronted Saul on the Damascus road, he, too, went blind and had to have someone lead him by the hand. That his conversion, something like scales, fell from his eyes, and he received his sight at once, Acts 9, 18. And here, Elymas is made blind at once. Saul, like Elymas, once labored to, in the perversion of the gospel, and now, as Paul, he labors in the conversion of the gospel. So in a sense, Paul judges Saul in the judgment 
of Alimus. But let us also know the kindness of the Lord in this judgment upon the sorcerer. We read that it was only for a season, it was for a time, that the man would have time to repent. While we are not told the final state of Elymas or Bar-Jesus, we are told of the effect that his immediate judgment had upon Sergius Paulus, the governor. Verse 12, Then the proconsul believed, when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The visible sign of God's power confirmed the veracity of his word. Sergius was not astonished at the sign. That's not what the text says. He wasn't astounded at this miracle so much as he was at the teaching of the Lord. Seeing the miracle, he then was astonished at the doctrine. This is the purpose of the signs and miracles of the New Testament, to confirm the word and doctrine of Christ, to bring sinners to faith in the one who is proclaimed in the word. This is the pattern that we see in the apostolic church. People see the miraculous demonstration of God's power, and they give heed to the word preached. This, too, is the nature of biblical Christianity. It's incarnational. Christ is the word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 1 and 14. Although miracles no longer accompany the preaching of the word, Christianity is still a religion in which the power of God is displayed, causing the world to be astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The world still beholds the powerful evidence of God's working among his people, seeing our love for one another, and by this, knowing that we are Christ's disciples, John 13, 35. They see our good works, and what do they do? They're astonished at the teaching of the Lord. They glorify our Father, which is in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. Paul's teaching was not like the teaching of the cult leaders and the, and the pagan priests on the island that Sergius was used to. It came with authority, divine authority. He spoke boldly, clearly, and directly. He didn't mince words or cause every statement that he made to die the death of a thousand qualifications. His teaching was nothing but the word of God, and so God added his blessing to it. We do not read of Sergius being baptized, but we have no reason to doubt that he was. Some have doubted his conversion, actually, but the text says he believed, and I think that's sufficient for us. Here, we have the first Christian magistrate, then, who, no doubt, went on to do his duty as a magistrate in faithful obedience to the God who had appointed him. Cyprus remains a predominantly Christian country to this day, at least the Greek Cypriot half after the Turkish invasion in the 1970s. In our passage, two Jews stand before a pagan magistrate. Bar-Jesus and Saul. One is a rejecter of Christ, a son of the devil, and he seeks to pervert the way of the Lord. And the other is a former rejecter of Christ, and now a son of God in the Son of God. And he speaks boldly and prophetically in the stead, in the place of Christ, denouncing error and leading the magistrate to faith. 
When the gospel came, in other words, to a holy Gentile context, it still remained powerful. For, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Its apostles could withstand the assaults and objections of the Gentiles also. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds and casting down of arguments. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Having seen and walked through this first apostolic missionary work, we may ask, in what ways can and should we imitate the apostles? Now, we obviously cannot imitate Paul and Barnabas in every particular in this passage. But this does not mean that we, as the church, should not imitate them at all. As we mentioned last week, one thing that we can learn or at least be reminded of from the primitive church is her bold and prophetic proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all people. We see that again here in our passage this evening. The modern church is often so concerned not to, be offend, not, not to offend anyone in her presentation of the gospel that when she finally gets around to presenting something, it can hardly be called Christ's gospel anymore. Our job is not to filter, edit, censor, or make Christ's words palatable to our current generation. It's just not. Our job is simply to present them to our current generation, not to adapt them for our current generation. The gospel was offensive in its own day. Should it not be surprising that it remains offensive in ours? In our secular and pluralistic age, it is considered bad taste to call evil by its name evil. Every idea, no matter how insane, no matter how demonic, how wicked, must be given a fair hearing. Coexisting has never been a biblical response. You've seen those stickers, right? They were popular a few years ago. I remember I actually went into a uh, church, a big mega church, and, and outside I tried to count how many coexist stickers I could see on the backs of the cars there, and I lost count. It's a brain-dead sticker for a Christian to have on the back of their car. This is because Christianity is a religion of dominion. Jesus is Lord, bow the knee, repent and believe, be baptized, and join his body. That is the gospel message that is to be proclaimed. Paul didn't stand, stand by quietly like a good boy while Elymas sought to turn the magistrate away from the faith. He just didn't. He set his eyes directly on this sorcerer and publicly called him what he was. God's truth must be more precious to us. It just must be more precious to us than to allow the feelings and the sentiments of false prophets to forbid us from speaking the truth. And our first, if our first reaction to Paul's words to Elymas are, well, I don't know, Paul is just too harsh. It just doesn't seem very Christ-like for Paul to say these things. Then the problem is with us. The problem is that we value God's truth too low. As Calvin says on this very point, commenting on this passage, quote, such was the vehemency of holy zeal and of the spirit in the prophets, which if dainty and soft men judge troublesome and raging, 
They consider not how dear and precious God's truth is to him. End quote. If you're offended by it, Calvin is saying, then you don't understand how dear and precious God's truth is to him. This, of course, does not give us license to mistreat people, to rail against people who believe something that's wrong, who believe something false. That's not what we should draw from this passage either, and Calvin makes that point very clearly in his commentary also. Remember that Paul spoke these words against Elymas by the inspiration of the Spirit as a prophet. We can't do that. And again, as Pastor Joel said this morning when talking about prophets, if you can, please come see the elders. We can't do that. And we shouldn't aim our attacks at people because we don't have the Holy Spirit discernment that Paul did here. But we nonetheless have the duty to decry dangerous and false ideas which pervert the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give an example of what I mean. We should not walk away from this passage thinking that at the next family get-together, when Uncle What's-His-Name says that, well, love is love, or after Grandma extols Joseph Smith again, that we should stand up, point at them, and cry out, oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? That's not what we should take away from this. But what I am saying is that we, as the church, should never pretend, never, that Satanism has a legitimate right to be represented to our government, that it's morally neutral for children to be lied to in our schools, that every ideology, every theology is valid and none pervert the straight paths of the Lord, that evil should go unchallenged in the presence of Christ's ambassadors, or that the church should just stay in its own lane, which apparently is finding a small corner to occupy where she can quietly repeat the Westminster standards to herself, except for the parts that tell her to go out and proclaim what she's learning in them to the world. Such a spirit is not found in Paul. And if we are to imitate him as he imitates Christ, then it cannot be found in us either. The best disinfectant is light. And the light of the gospel must not be hid under a basket, but put on a lampstand, so that it gives light to all who are in the house, Matthew 5, 15. In our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our governments, we, as the church, must boldly proclaim the gospel, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and faithfully bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We must also imitate the apostles here in being led, empowered, and filled by the Holy Spirit. We must, though we're reformed, be, with Calvin, great lovers of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin was called the theologian of the Holy Spirit in his day. We are led, empowered, and filled by the Spirit by giving heed to his word and and by partaking faithfully in his means of grace and sacraments. The Holy Spirit gives birth to faithful people working in them and through them, transforming and conforming them to the image of God's dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no doubt in Sergius's mind that Paul was at work, or that, that God was at work in Paul. There wasn't. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord when he saw who Paul was and how God was working in and through him. 
Nietzsche made a challenge once. The, the atheistic German philosopher Nietzsche once made a challenge, and I think it remains today. Quote, you will have to look more redeemed if you want me to believe in your Redeemer. End quote. Ouch. Do we believe in the spirit of Paul? Do we believe that the same spirit which raised the Lord Jesus Christ is in us? Is that work in us? Is empowering us? Are we surrendered to the same spirit that Paul here is? Do we go to him in his ordinary means of grace? O blessed spirit, have thy way in us. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we again come before thee, thankful for this Lord's Day that we have been given. Oh God, please make us bold. Help us to love thy truth and thy word and to hate evil. Give us wisdom as we stand against the wickedness of this age. Help us to do it in love and help us to do it in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ in our daily lives, O oh Lord. Lord, as we go forth from this place and go into the rest of our week, please aid us, please guide us, Please direct us and help us, Lord, to bring glory to thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior's name, in whose name we do pray. Amen.